Well, I want to just remind you again about the Jesus Is videos you saw earlier that we do need people to help deliver food boxes. This seems like a time in our community where there's a lot of needs and a lot of people who are homeless. And just to let you know kind of how things work here, the church helps a lot of people that come by. And we do try to uh, do a thorough job screening them and really trying to see what the need is. But obviously we have our limitations for what we're able to do. But uh, anytime uh, the, the amount that the need is exceeds $100, then our deacons get involved. And Kirk Whitaker is our deacon in charge of benevolence. And so that's kind of how we operate on the benevolence for people in the community. But one thing we do want to do, once a year we collect a fund, usually on the, at the Christmas Eve service, for Salvation Army, as well as we support them monthly. I think it's just a very minimum $50 a month or so. And so we're going to take up an offering today after the service just to kind of help, since there seems to be more and more costs associated with, you know, helping those who are in need right now. And so Seth will be in the back as you leave with a little green basket. And so if you could put that in a separate than you would your normal tithes and offerings, that would be helpful. And so if you could help with either delivering food or just help with providing uh, funds for that. That would be really, really a huge encouragement. And then also, uh, this is kind of unrelated, but related because Jesus is ministry is about serving and stepping up and using our gifts. And Elizabeth um, Whaley will be starting up her women's Bible study for the community this week. It'll be on Wednesday at 10 o'clock. Wednesday at 10 o'clock at one place, which is right across from the little theater. And so, ladies, if you're available during that time and like to come to the women's Bible study, that will be on Wednesday. And so um, that's a lot to remember, and there'll be actually a few more announcements at the end, so I wanted to make some at the beginning. You know, you've all come across products and advertisements, infomercials that claim to be able to do certain things, and as you're watching those things, you're scratching your head like, okay, can that really, really do that, what they're saying it is? And some things it seems to be like they claim to do impossible things. And so companies are constantly misrepresenting their products and what they claim to do. And here's, here's one that I, I, I came across, and I thought it was one of the more humorous. I could pick many, many examples of this. Go ahead and put that picture on the screen for those who can't see. Um, and so this is hair enhancer, all right? This is my secret hair enhancer, all right? So uh, apparently, you know, they thought they could get away with basically portraying spray paint as uh, a way to enhance your hair. Anybody want to come up and volunteer to try this? Is, this is medium brown, if anybody wants to try it. All right, uh, Sean says he'll try it, all right? I'll hold it here for you after the service. But, but it, it, you know, just an example of like these incredibly bold, courageous claims that people make. And, and sadly, we see this associated with religion as well. If you've been watching TV sometimes at night, I mentioned this last week or the week before, you know, how many times have you seen, like, I've seen actually somebody say, reach out and touch the screen for healing, but then make sure you send your check in, right? Or if you send this much, God will bless you this way. And, and so there's a lot of claims made, these bold claims made, even connected to faith and religion. Well, in today's text, Jesus makes some pretty big claims, some pretty huge claims. And truthfully, sadly, many churches, many pastors misrepresent what those claims are. But I want us to look at Jesus' claim, see what it is, and see does it actually, is it true? Can Jesus do what he's claiming to do? So in John chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. We'll touch on 11, but mainly 1 through 10. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, I thank you so much for your word that provides us truth in a world that hates truth, that despises truth, and 
We know that Satan, at some level, you've given him power and authority in this world to lie and to steal and destroy and to kill. And God, I pray that you will help us to see how important it is to know the truth and allow the truth to set us free because we know that, um, that Satan is coming at us and this world is coming at us with all they have. And God, I pray that you will just allow us today, no matter what's going on in our life, it seems like this has been a particular tough time in our church. There's many, many parents who have passed away, and even Friday night, Janet's father passing away, God, and there's so much, uh, so much to, to, to mourn and grieve over. But God, there's also so much to celebrate as we sang in the song from life's first breath to the final breath. And we see so many children being born, so many ladies that are pregnant right now. God, there's so much hope. And God, I pray that you'll help us as followers of you to put all our hope and trust in you and not in the things of this world that will always fail to live up to their, what their, their claims. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John Chen, let's look at verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Those listening to Jesus as he gave this parable would have understood way better than we could even imagine the intimate contact and trust that existed between a shepherd and his sheep. We don't live in those days in in an age where we have shepherds and we don't have people in our church who have their livelihood as shepherds. I doubt anybody even owns a sheep in here, right? Does anybody own a sheep? All right, I, not, not likely, but in Jesus' time, it was a very common and, and very visual illustration that they would have understood completely. And in fact, it was so prominent in the Bible that the image of God as a shepherd was seen throughout the Old Testament. But apart from the Bible, you, know, you may not realize this, apart from the Bible, during the times of the Old Testament, the metaphor of a shepherd was used for a king, even a, a secular king, non-Israel, non-Judah king, a king who would be ruling, and the kind of the image was when a king was good that he was not only a strong leader, but he was a tender leader, a caring leader. And, and that's far removed from our day and age where the last thing a CEO of a company probably wants to be viewed at is a shepherd, right? He's a bottom-line guy. He makes things happen. He brings success on Wall Street. He definitely is somebody who's strong and powerful, but not really tender, so to speak. And so it's, it's a different way of thinking for us because this idea of shepherd and a king being connected to a shepherd is not the image that we naturally come up with. But Jesus gives this picture because a, a, a king should be strong and tender and a shepherd is strong and tender. And so the biblical picture of a shepherd is that he stays with his flock. He cares about his flock and his sheep are completely and totally dependent upon him for food, water, protection, and so on. And so the Old Testament imagery, probably one of the most known verses in the Old Testament, Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So when Jesus grabs hold of an image from the Old Testament to use to portray his, himself to his day and age and to us today, he chooses to show the, the image of a shepherd as connected to him being the true king. So Jesus is the king and he's the shepherd. So Jesus revealed himself as the shepherd of his people. Now, one thing to note, and I would encourage you to maybe look at this later, Ezekiel chapter 34 speaks to God that he would come to shepherd his people. 
And the book of Ezekiel is a very tough book. In fact, I'm reading Ezekiel in my reading group right now with some other people in this room and on the U version, and it's, it's a very tough read. But we're coming to some areas soon where you see these prophetic um, things that are said that are fulfilled within Jesus in his days. And you also see some really stark warnings we'll look at in just a minute. So God promised to return to his people and come as a shepherd to his people. So unlike the past kings of Israel, so many of them were terrible shepherds, were terrible kings. And like so many others who came and the religious leaders, specifically in the context of our passage today, they were horrible at leading and shepherding people. They were not what God had called them to be uh, as far as the people needing someone who's strong and someone who is tender. And so Jesus in verse 1 through 4, he actually doesn't refer to himself in these verses. In fact, in the first five verses, and then when he gives the interpretation, most of the time we skip ahead and look at verse 11 and read back into it. But if you read verses 1 through 5, Jesus doesn't mention himself. He only mentions that these are under, possibly under shepherds. And what a great reminder, and I'll say more about this in a minute, that, that he speaks to anybody who's shepherding people and leading people. And that's elders and deacons in this church. That's fathers and mothers in the home. That's classroom teachers and G-kids. That we have this opportunity to shepherd and to guide people. And we're under shepherds for the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. And while we'll never be good and perfect like Jesus, he's called us to lead and to shepherd our families, to lead and shepherd this church, lead and shepherd the class that he's given to you. And so keep that in mind as we read this again. Let's look at one, verse 1 and 2 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So the sheepfold, if you haven't figured this out already, it's a sheep pen. Here's a picture of what an ancient sheep pen would have looked like. And in view was this large independent enclosure where often several families kept their sheep and they would hire a, an under-shepherd to be the gatekeeper, and so the shepherd would be in charge and responsible, and there might be multiple shepherds if the pen was large enough where multiple families of sheep were in there. And I think we'll see as he continues on, that's what he's referring to here, verse 2 and 3. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So the person who goes through the door, that's the shepherd. Uh, to him, the gatekeeper opens the, the, the door. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. So Jesus' point is pretty clear here. His point is that unauthorized people desire to enter the pen and brutalize the sheep. All right? Very simple point. There's people who are unauthorized who are trying to enter and brutalize the sheep. And as we talked a lot in this context of John chapter 8 and 9, the Pharisees have set them up themselves up as the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel, but they have distanced themselves from the common everyday people. They don't want anything to do with the common people. And, and sort of like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's preached even still today, their viewpoint was God's blessing was on those who were successful and healthy and doing well, but the cursed people, the people who God's wrath was against were those like the blind man in chapter 9 who are sick and are poor and are needy. And these are the outcasts, and God is against those. And in fact, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, that's really who he's speaking to in the Beatitudes. He's speaking to those who found themselves in that condition. But Jesus, by contrast, Jesus smelled like his own sheep, all right? Jesus smelled like his sheep because he literally lived among 
his people, his disciples, and immersed himself into these relationships just like a shepherd would during that day. He lived among his people. He was not above them. He smelled like them. He lived with them. And so in this context, the thieves and the robbers are the religious leaders who are more interested in fleecing the sheep than to guiding them and nurturing them and caring for them. But the shepherd knows his sheep, the verse tells us in verse 2 and 3. And he's recognized by the gatekeeper as the natural and rightful shepherd, and he's also recognized by the sheep. And I love the picture we get in verse 3. It says he leads them out by name. He calls, them, calls his sheep by name, and he leads them out. So the shepherd has this very special relationship with every single sheep is the picture there. That's an awesome picture because God's not some distant God who's out of touch with your reality and your world and what you're going through. And this picture of a shepherd and his sheep know his voice. They know he knows them by name. Michelle has nine chickens, and it's been kind of interesting because we've never been around chickens in our lives. Some of you guys know all about chickens. This is our equivalent to sheep, right? And so we saw very quickly that each chicken had their own unique personality and their own mannerisms and way of acting. And so we begin to name our chickens. And since there's only nine, we can pull that off and remember them by their mannerisms or what they reminded us of. And when Michelle walks out of the back porch, they come yelling and screaming at her because they love her because she's bringing them food. She loves them. She cares for them. And there's one particular one. We call her Fanny. And Fanny just follows us around all everywhere we go. I mean, she's our little pet chicken. I mean, she literally just will not leave our side if we allow her. And so they know they're cared for. But I'm not sure if chickens honestly respond to their name or care about their name. But Jesus is given this illustration, and he says that he knows us by name. And people, people, unlike animals, care. They really care if you use their name and say their name and know their name. What is it, what is it send? What kind of message does it send to people if you always forget their names, right? You always say, like, hey, buddy, how you doing? And, like, it's like you've known them for three years, and you're still telling them, hey, buddy, right? And, and, and it's like, unless it's your, your name, right? That's my dad's name. You can call him buddy, okay? But anybody else, don't call them buddy, all right? So knowing someone's name means a lot to them. And unlike Jesus, our brains don't have enough bandwidth to hold everybody's names, and sometimes we have those spots. But it's, it's interesting that Jesus makes a specific point to say the good shepherd knows your name, and he never forgets it. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're his child, and you will never be forgotten, and he knows your name. And that's so important for us to remember, because people hurt us. Churches hurt us. K-groups get hurt us at times. There's always going to be people in our lives who, under the name of representing Jesus, and even maybe trying really hard, even through the power of the Holy Spirit to represent Jesus well, still miss their cue and let you down. And it's so sad that so many people today are sitting at home instead of being in a church service somewhere, in a congregation, in a body, because they've been hurt by church. Something's happened along the way, and so they're like, I don't want to be part of that anymore. What's well, going to happen, and only Jesus is the perfect shepherd, but it's, it doesn't dismiss the responsibility that those of us who have spiritual leadership to be the shepherds God calls us to be. And so Jesus knows everything about us. He knows us. He knows when we need rest and nourishment. He knows when we need care. And he loves us because he just loves us. He chose us 
and he selected us, and he calls us by name. I want you to try this with your children, okay? The ones that aren't in here right now. So if your kids are over in G Kids today, I want you to try this. If they're a little bit older, five, six, seven, eight, I'm, I'm sure as a good parent, you tell them at night or tell them during the day, you say, I love you. I love you at night. You say, I love you. See you tomorrow. I love you. But what happens if you say their name in connection with that? You look at them and you say, I love you, Johnny. I love you, Johnny. All of a sudden, probably, unless you do that all the time, you're going to get their attention. Because there's just something special about being called by name and saying, I love you by your name. And so Jesus specifically points out that his sheep know his voice and he calls them by name. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Again, what Jesus is doing here, he's exposing the false religious leaders of his day. And he says you can recognize the true king in the same way that you can recognize a true shepherd. That the phrase, all his own, highlights that his sheep respond to him. The common people are not responding to the spiritual leaders of the day because they don't know them. That's not God's ambassadors. Those are not people to lead and shepherd them from God. And Jesus, again, by contrast, says, my sheep know my voice. They respond to my voice. And he says, the phrase, all his own, it highlights this. His sheep respond to him, and they follow him out of the pen. And I love verse 4. This is something you probably would not have noticed just on a quick reading or even, you know, even a light study. But this is really interesting. He says in verse 4, when he has brought out all his own. Brought out is the term that's used there. And this is where this connects to chapter 9 that we just read. The story, if you missed some of the last few weeks, you missed the story of the blind man who was healed. And when the Pharisees uh, found out that we're kind of pushing him, and to, how did Jesus do this? Tell us the truth about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? That, that he responded in a way that he hated because he affirmed Jesus and who Jesus was and actually lectured them. And so they threw him out. They expelled him from the synagogue. And it's actually the same exact Greek word, this idea, the term brought out, and the term that's used for cast out is actually the same word in the Greek. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, so don't be impressed with that, okay? That's where a little study and a little work, can, you can learn these things, and it's interesting seeing that connection. Now, yes, people can go crazy and abuse the original language and make it say pretty much anything they want it to say. But in this case, there's no doubt that chapter 9 and chapter 10, this ties together because the one who leads the sheep in a direction where they go, should go, is Jesus, the good shepherd, or a good shepherd of the people, whereas the one who dismisses the sheep for their own selfish purposes, those are the false leaders, the false shepherds. And so you see the picture here? Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they use people. They throw people out when they don't do what they're supposed to do. They dismiss them. Whereas Jesus, in the opposite, complete opposite way of this, he brings them to himself. He brings them along. He carries them with, the, with himself. He guides them. And so what a beautiful picture that God goes before. He says he goes before them. The shepherd goes before them. I've told you before about a time in, when I was in Texas as a youth pastor. I brought a group of students actually all the way here to Georgia 
to hike on the Appalachian Trail. And I think it was a group of 12 or 13 um, besides myself. And we came to hike this, this first section of Georgia. And the entire time that we were there on the trail, here on the trail, it was just rainy every single day. I mean, just poured the rain every day. We were soaked. We were miserable. And at one point, we literally almost had a mutiny and wanted to turn back and give up on it. I was like, we're too far along to turn back. We can't turn back now because the van, the church van was parked at the finish end of it. And I'd been and dropped off there and brought back to the beginning point with the group. And so we had no choice but to continue on. But as we got close to the end and we're getting near, I had three students who just could not keep up. I mean, they just couldn't. I think they were just spent. They were wasted. They were probably like ninth or 10th graders. And this was way beyond really what they probably were capable of doing. And, and, and the other group, the other portion of the group, they had gotten their kind of second wind. They got their energy, and they were walking fast because they knew we were close to the end, and they were going strong. But I had these three back here who were just holding back. Now, in my pride and in my, ability, my desire to show these younger people at the beginning of the line here that I was still strong and capable and hanging with them, I wanted to be with them because they were moving fast. They were almost in a jogging pace to finish this thing up and get back to the van and get home. But we had these three back here who just would not keep up. And so I was yelling at them. And I was saying, let's go. Come on, let's go. And, and while I was up here in the front leading, I was yelling at them to come along. But finally, I had to swallow my pride and say to myself, you know what? This is a terrible leader. I, this is not leading by trying to keep up with the front group while yelling at the back group. And so finally, I just had to go back to the back group. And I just had to hang out with those three students the rest of the way. And it was literally, this no exaggeration, up one of the final hills that we went up, they would take one step and we'd have to rest. And they'd take one step and we'd have to rest. And we did that for quite a while. But that's the picture, I think, that we have of Jesus that's way more than this picture of leading by yelling and pulling you along. But it's this kind and compassionate leader who's there with you in the trial, in the struggle, and he's bringing you along, he's leading you, he's going before you, not driving you, but directing you by his voice. And it's a voice that they know, a voice they recognize. So the sheep know the difference between the shepherd and imposters who come into the group. Look at verse 5. It says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. So it says the sheep actually run from the very presence of the stranger. They can't be deceived by him, even if he's trying to speak to them and, and share his voice. They don't believe him because his very presence is a warning to them that this is not right. And then right in the middle of Jesus' speech, John interjects commentary for the reader. He says, verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And that seems pretty common, right? Throughout Jesus' ministry, you've seen that during parables, after parables, a lot of people are scratching their head. The disciples are scratching their head. Jesus, tell us, what are you talking about here? Now, interestingly enough, for those who are kind of, you know, care about Bible knowledge, Bible trivia, this may be the only parable in the Gospel of John. Uh, we, we only find this parable. Some classified John 15 possibly as a parable. But this was the only parable possibly in the book of John. And so parables require often more of an explanation. And at one point in Jesus' ministry, you may remember that Jesus began to only teach in parables exclusively. And he refused to explain those 
par- uh, those parables to his opponents, he wanted them left in their spiritual blindness and confused. Why? Because he, they, he knew that they were just rejecting him. They did not really weren't seekers of the truth. All they were is they're trying to expose him and to show him to be a fraud. And so here we find Jesus explains the parable in verses 7 and 8. Let's look at that. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. All right, so if you're following along here, verse 11 tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd, and now Jesus says he's the door. Which one is he? And we also saw earlier there's a gatekeeper. Now, some people say that you've got to connect, exactly connect these two together that Jesus is painting a couple different pictures here. But if you go back to the picture, the illustration that I showed earlier, the picture of the pen, what do you see the shepherd doing there? The shepherd's actually, he is the gate, all right? He is the gate to the sheepfold. So actually he sleeps right in the doorway to make sure that no predators enter in and none of the sheep wander away. And so I, I, I believe this is the picture Jesus is possibly painting here, although I said earlier at the beginning, he did say something about a gatekeeper. But nevertheless, he says, I'm the door. So he's a shepherd, and he's also the door to the sheep. And hopefully this idea of the door to the sheep is pretty self-explanatory as much as we talked about Jesus being the way to the truth and the life. But this is one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John that's basically universally agreed upon. I am the door of the sheep. He says, and so Jesus is stressing that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven through any other means other than coming through him. And he reinforces his exclusiveness by saying in verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So Israel throughout its history has had many messianic pretenders who claim to be the salvation for the people. They had many people who come along, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the rulers of the nation, who claimed to hear from God, to represent God, to be God's representative to the people, and to speak to the people for God. But we learned that these are all fake, selfish, for the end for their own well-being, spiritual leaders. And Jesus says, don't pay attention and don't listen to them. And if you go back to Ezekiel 34, this is great. Look at verses 2 through 4, what Ezekiel said. He says, Thus saith the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so the picture of Israel's history and the Pharisees are just coming along doing the exact same thing that's happened throughout the nation, is shepherds who were in it for what they could get out of it. And again, this imagery, again, of of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, and blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are hurting or desperate, the outcasts, those who are persecuted for righteousness. They're the blessed ones. Because Jesus came to say God's kingdom is available for everyone. The blind man, the leper, the sinner, the prostitute. God's grace is available to everyone, if you'll respond. And Jesus got in there, and he smelled like his sheep, 
And he mixed it up and he was there with them while the Pharisees stood off in their pious way with their clothes, with their spiritual garb and religious garb and criticized and condemned Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. But Jesus came to feed the sheep, unlike the bad spiritual leadership that the nation had experienced and was experiencing, who just took advantage. Those were the thieves and the robbers who wanted to jump over into the pen another way and take advantage and brutalize. But Jesus, now we see in verse 9 and 10, his incredible claims, this is incredible news. He says, verse 9 again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus restates his unique status as the door, and he claims that he provides abundant life. And unfortunately, many people, you look at Jesus' claims, and maybe you say, you know what? I used to think that Jesus provided abundant life, but my life pretty much is terrible. It's almost like this right here that Jesus claimed, you know, that that this was what he was going to do for me. And in the end of the day, it was just fake. It was misrepresentative of who he really was. I just don't believe that Jesus provides abundant life. Well, if you're honestly with yourself today, you're here and you're saying, I'm kind of in that boat. I want to ask you a question. What kind of abundant life are you looking for? I, we talk a lot, I talk a lot about reading the New Morning Mercies devotion every morning because Paul Tripp does such a great job of just taking the gospel and apply it in really practical ways. And if you've been reading along in the book, you've seen the last, I think, five days that he's talked about how that, um, what kind of Messiah do you want Jesus to be? And he has some funny names. One day was Prozac Jesus, one was Vacation Planner Jesus, Suggestion Box Jesus, District Attorney Jesus, and today, and Match.com Jesus, and today is Neiman Marcus Jesus. And the, the point he's making is, have you reduced Jesus to one of these descriptions? And what he's saying is, we're trying to create a Jesus that works for our agenda, rather than remembering that we're the disciples and that we work for his agenda. All right? We work for his agenda. So when we make demands upon God and upon Jesus, and Jesus, I thought you were supposed to come into my life and you were supposed to fix everything and make everything exactly right and easy. Sadly, that's the gospel that America has received over the last 50 years of my life. I've seen over and over, it was this soft prosperity gospel. You can't outgive God. You give to God, and it was always turned around. It's going to be material blessings that were given back to you. Yes, is there some natural things and good natural blessing that comes with being responsible with your finances and and putting God first in your finances. Good things happen when you obey God's commands and his laws, for sure, because we live in a what's called a Judeo-Christian society, at least for some point, where if you do good things like tell the truth and obey your parents, typically good things happen as a result of that. But think about other countries where the gospel is persecuted and people are martyred. And they come to Jesus, and all of a sudden their life turns upside down, and their family disowns them. What kind of prosperity gospel are they experiencing? You see, we've made it a very American, Christian, Western gospel, and we've taken Jesus' claim that he gives us abundant life, and we've turned it into basically this right here, that it's going to do something that Jesus never claimed to be able to do. And I see all the time 
people, when they run into marriage problems, they say, we better get back in church because we need to fix our marriage. Rick, church is a great place to help you fix your marriage, but church in itself will not fix your marriage. Only Jesus can fix your marriage. Only Jesus, as the center of everything, can fix your marriage and help your marriage function the way that it should function. Because you see, Jesus' purposes, here's what our lives should be about, and God has given me this partner in my life to live for that purpose, that great grand purpose of the cross and living for him and representing him and bringing glory to God. But we turn it into just, God, bless my marriage so we're happy and we have pretty much everything we need and we're really comfortable in life. You see, we've done that, have we not? And, and it's ingrained so deep in our mindset that even though I talk about this a lot, it's still a little bit of shock to your system because we all like our comforts. We all like what we like. And we're all selfish to the core. And so when Jesus says, I've come to give you life and to give it to you in abundance, he's not talking about some claim that you're going to have life easy and prosperous. He's not peddling some kind of thing that makes this bold claim that he could never come through. He's saying that he offers a salvation and a deliverance and a relationship with God and peace with God that has nothing to do with what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day were claiming, that it was about materialism and success and wealth. It has to do with the fact that God is for us and not against us. Jesus offers a true path of righteousness and eternal peace with God the Father. He offers the true path to righteousness and eternal peace with God the Father. That's what the abundant life at its core is. It's knowing that God is for me, not against me. That I'm as righteous as I'm ever going to be in Christ. In Christ, he declared me righteous. There's no more earning. There's no more staying awake at night wondering if I've done enough or if I provided enough for those people who are in need or if I cared enough or if I loved enough to earn God's favor. And he loves me more because I've done these. And if I don't do them, he loves me less. You see, that's the mindset of not only the day and age when Jesus lived, that's the mindset of us today. It's everything we know. It's a performance-driven mindset. We do certain things, and we get these results. We get, I say we do the dance, and we get the hugs, right? That's the way we're wired. But salvation that Jesus offers says you've been declared righteous, that there's nothing you can do or not do to make God love you less. And within that position of who we are in Christ, then we're able to walk and follow him the way that he's called us to follow and to bring glory to God. Because if we truly know him, we desire to know more of him. Somebody once said, to have found God and still be looking for him is the soul's paradox of love. And it's true. We know God, we found him, but we continue to look for him by meeting with him because that's why he created us. Adam and Eve in the garden were created for fellowship with God. And what did sin do? Sin broke that fellowship. But what did Jesus came? He came and restored that fellowship through the cross and through his blood and through his resurrection. Now we've been restored to that relationship. And what he created us for, which is to know him and to have a relationship with him, that's been renewed through Jesus Christ. That's the abundant life. And if you're serious about your relationship with Jesus, and if you want to know more of him, and you're seeking after him, and you're seeking his purposes versus your comfort in life and what you want out of life, then all of a sudden you begin to live your life in a way that glorifies and honors him. Definitely not perfect. Definitely not sin-free. 
There's going to be lots of stumbles. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're, you're beating yourself up over the weekend because, you know what, it was not a weekend that you care to remember for your Christian walk. You really betrayed Jesus and you were embarrassed about Jesus or you did things that you're not really too proud of. And in Christ, you don't have to be held down and say, let me earn my way back and then I can represent Jesus again. You represent Jesus because you're in Jesus. That's who you are. And we allow that love relationship to continue to grow. And out of that flows this, this love for our shepherd and wanting to hear his voice and wanting to listen to him. And when he calls our name and when he says our name and he calls us out, we go and we follow because we know the voice of our shepherd. And so the application today is very simple. Jesus loves and cares for you personally. He's the shepherd who loves and cares for you personally. And unlike the religious leaders of the day, Jesus wanted to be with his people, and he wants to be with you too. The heart, when you really believe that, you can take your life off your shoulders because God has placed it on his. You can take your life off your shoulders because God has placed your life on his. What an incredible thought. What an incredible reminder. And then the hands. One important way Jesus cares for his sheep is by appointing human shepherds. Are you a good shepherd? Are you being a good shepherd to your flock? If your flock's one, if it's five, if it's this entire church, if it's your K group, are you being a good shepherd? Here's the question. What is one thing you can do this week to be a more Christ-like shepherd? What's one thing you can do this week? So dads, let's don't finish up here. Let's think. What's one thing, dads, I can do to be a better shepherd to my kids? Moms, what's one thing I can do to be a better shepherd? K-group leader, what's one thing I can do to be a better shepherd to my K-group? Deacon, elders, G-kids leader, a want worker, those who are your little sheep. How are you leading them? Are you leading them to Jesus? Or are you leading them away from Jesus, or you think you're just kind of indifferent, which is leading them away from Jesus. What can you do, one thing this week, through the power of the Spirit, to be a better shepherd, more like Christ? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this parable that we have that Jesus gave us, and how we can connect this, our position in you, who we are in you, and just our everyday life, and know that you care for us, and we're yours, and you call us out by name. And you lead us into pasture. And we come and we can go and we find rest in you. And God, I thank you for that. And I pray for those who right now maybe are not feeling like they're experiencing that. And they're putting maybe way too much stock in their current experience or their emotions. God, I pray you'll help them to rest in the eternal forever truth that they are in you. And that you're for them and you're not against them. And God, I pray you'll help us in our human relationships that we will strive to be good shepherds and good leaders to those who are in our sphere of influence. We pray in the powerful, strong name of our good shepherd, Jesus. Amen.